any one of us who has taken on the challenging, sobering, fear-inducing responsibility of a parent knows that there is a very good kind of fear and a very bad kind of fear. The good kind of fear is the kind of fear that you as a parent want to develop in your child. The bad kind of fear is the kind of fear that you need to work very hard to try to deliver them, to bring them out of that fear. The good kind of fear. My sister and brother-in-law, Sarah and Luke, have moved into a new house. They are on a somewhat busy road where cars will zip by at 30 or 35 miles an hour. And they and our children, when they go over to Sarah and Luke's house or to Grandma's house on the same street, we are trying to teach them a good fear. Be afraid of the road. Be afraid of the cars that zip by the road. And of course, as little Xander or little Addie just toddle around without any conception of danger, we say, that road, don't go past that road. Those of you who are parents know as well, when you're introducing your child to the pool, to the local community pool, you are trying to create fear. That is something to be afraid of. But you also know the bad kind of fear, the fear that you don't want your children to have. The kind of fear that wonders if that monster really is in the closet. That wonders whether that alarm clock on the dresser, it looks exactly like something they should be terrified of when the lights are off. Or one that I am particularly familiar of. No, son, there's no wolf in our house. Wolves live nowhere near St. Anthony, Minnesota. And even if a, a wolf was in our neighborhood, our doors are locked, our house is sealed, they cannot get in. And no, he is not in the closet either. You can tell I've never been down that path before. There's a good fear and there's a bad fear. And do you know the same thing is true for us as full-grown Christians? We know that because we see here this wonderful tension, this wonderful paradox in two verses back to back in Hebrews 11 about this man named Moses. We've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, verse by verse, trying to get a, 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 an entire comprehensive picture of faith. What is faith? And we see here in this man named Moses, will you look with me in verse number 27? Thank you, Ben. In verse number 27, Scripture says of Moses, By faith, Moses forsook, he left behind, that's the idea, he left behind Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He was fearless. He did not fear. He did not give in to a bad fear. Now look at verse 28. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. In one circumstance, Moses was entirely fearless, rejecting a wrong kind of faith from the person who could kill him. In the other circumstance, he was entirely fearful. There was a destroyer that could kill his firstborn. 
that could kill the firstborn of the people of Israel. Who was that destroyer? It was God himself. And what did he do by faith in response to the fear that said, there's a destroyer that's going to kill my firstborn? He obeyed. He kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Friends, there is by faith to the mature Christian a fearlessness and a great fear. You see that? And they go together. They are together. They are connected. The title of our message this morning is By Faith, the Right Kind of Fear. By Faith, the Right Kind of Fear. And my question for you, as it was for me, as I needed to prepare this message, is this. Do you have the right kind of fear? Is your life characterized by the right kind of fear or by the wrong kind of fear? We're going to look at three aspects here. First, faith's fearlessness from verse 27. Secondly, faith's fear from verse 28. And then finally, faith's focus. Faith's fearlessness, faith's fear, and faith's focus. Let's start with verse 27, shall we? By faith... Moses forsook or left behind Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Now, we need to understand or at least take a position on what this is talking about. Let me ask you this. How many times did Moses leave Egypt? Does anyone know how many times? Two times. What's the time perhaps that we think about most frequently when Moses left behind Egypt? The Passover, right? He left behind, he left Egypt. Pharaoh said, go ahead and leave. And out went Moses and they crossed the Red Sea like on dry land. We'll look at that next time in Hebrews 11. But he left before. He actually, when he was 40 years old and he had killed that Egyptian and he had buried him, that thing was known, it was found out. And scripture says, Moses feared. And he ran from Egypt. He went to Midian. He was there for 40 years. And only then did he come back to, to, to Egypt. So what is Hebrews 11 talking about? Is it saying that he forsook? Is it talking about when he left behind Egypt the first time when he was 40 years old? After he had killed that Egyptian, he was trying to deliver the people. The people said, nope, you're not our judge. And he ran. Or is it talking about the second time when he left in the Passover? Those who believe that he's talking about the first time he left say, well, this comes before the Passover in the Bible narrative. And so it's clearly signaling something that happened before the Passover. And that could only mean the first time he left. Others say, well, that's impossible. Because Exodus 2 tells us, as I said, that when Moses left the first time, he was scared. He was afraid. He feared. And here in Hebrews 11, it said he was not afraid. So it can't be that time. Well, let each be convinced in his own mind. Very godly and good commentators and preachers have lined up on different sides of this. Here's the only thing I'm going to say. I just want to look at it in terms of the broader picture. I want to look at it in in the sense that Moses left behind Egypt in a way that culminated in his ultimate departure with the Passover. So I'm not going to say it was only one or the other. I'm going to say we just need to see what was going on in Moses that allowed him to abandon Egypt for good, to leave it behind entirely and never to return. 
So we see here in Hebrews 11 that by faith he left behind Egypt and he did not fear the wrath of the king. Now we should focus in on that phrase. What does that mean? The king, of course, was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was one of the most powerful men in the entire world at that time. He commanded the force of the entire Egyptian army. He commanded the wealth of Egypt. He was a man that was to be feared. And what was Moses' job? Do you remember what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he appeared to him at the burning bush? He said to Moses, Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, that's not an intimidating job at all, is it? What's your job, Moses? Go to maybe the most powerful man in all the world and say, you are holding slaves and relying on them for your wealth and prosperity, but they are God's people, and so let them go. Go ahead and destroy your economy. We're leaving. How do you think that went across? Not very well. When we read here that, that Moses didn't fear the wrath of the king, that's because the king got mad. Pharaoh got mad. He got angry. In fact, at one point in this back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh says to him, you leave here right now and never look at me again. Never come before me again. If you do, if I see your face again, I'll kill you. And what does scripture say of Moses? He was fearless. In fact, notice what scripture says in verse 23. He didn't fear the wrath of the king, for he endured. The idea of endurance is persistence. He kept on going. In fact, scripture tells us if you were just to look through, I was counting through the number of times that Moses confronted Pharaoh, or, or scripture says that he was in his presence. It's over a dozen times. Over a dozen different times, Moses goes head to head with perhaps the most powerful man in the world and says, let my people go. And if you don't, I'm going to bring the judgment of God on your land. That's fearlessness. You know, we see even in our world today, what is the temptation of people when they are around powerful people? to be extraordinarily obsequious, to be extraordinarily fearful. Do you know this? I, 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 it's just such a, a, a feature of even our politics today. The people who are on one side of the aisle are so bold and so courageous like a lion when the other party is in power. But what happens when their guy is in power? Oh, we dare not criticize. We dare not call out his faults. It happens on both sides of the aisle. Why? Because the closer we get to power, the, more, the greater tendency we have naturally to avoid rocking the boat. We're concerned about what effect it will have on us. Not Moses. He was fearless. And that's why we see, secondly, faith's fear in Exodus, excuse me, in, in verse 28 here. So here, in the face of the most powerful person, perhaps, on earth at the time, he is entirely fearless. And then in verse 28, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12, will you? I want to look at this in just a little more depth. You can keep your finger in Hebrews 11 or a marker as we come back there. Let's notice Exodus chapter 12. God has instructed Moses exactly what this Passover will be. 
before this great final plague is brought upon the Egyptians that will send the people of God away from Egypt? And notice what Moses says. Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. Kill the lamb. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and use this hyssop like a paintbrush, that's really what they're doing, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel, that's the top of the door, the door frame, and the two side posts on either side of the door with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. Don't leave your house. You are locked down, as some of us have known in this last year. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel, that's on, the, again, the top frame of the door, and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer, will not allow the destroyer to come in under your houses to smite you. Now notice what God's saying here. God is saying, I am the one who is sending the destroyer. This is my judgment. I am the one who will be responsible for the death that will occur in this land. And what is necessary for you, Moses, that your house and the houses of the people of Israel, God's people, to, that the requirement for them to avoid the destroyer is that they do this strange ritual now, if you were Moses in that day, or you were the people of Israel, how would you have responded? Wouldn't it seem strange to you? Okay, I can understand that God's going to bring judgment on the Egyptians. I've been seeing it for the last nine plagues. It makes sense that God might bring another plague on the Egyptians, but he's asking me to do what? I've got to take a lamb. Lambs were valuable. They were precious. I've got to take something that's precious to me. I have to kill him. I have to take his blood and sprinkle it against the doorpost. What in the world? How does that have anything to do with whether or not the destroyer comes? Not only that, now I have to eat the lamb, as we see in, 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 in the rest of Exodus chapter 12. I have to take unleavened bread. I have to take bitter herbs. Maybe that's a bitter greens of a salad or something along those lines. I have to eat it with my entire family. I have to then not go out of my house all night. What is this? They might have been confused, just like perhaps we are confused going back and saying, what does this have to do with that deliverance? And yet, what do we read? Notice in verse 28. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. And what is the result? The result is that the destroyer comes through the land and kills the firstborn. What is the result of for the children of Israel? All the children of Israel are delivered. They are saved entirely. Not one of the firstborn is killed from their houses. And out go the people of Israel. Pharaoh finally expels them from the land and says, leave. Again, do you see the paradox here? Before one threat, Moses is entirely fearless. Pharaoh can kill him. And he says, I don't care. I'm still going to speak the truth to him. Before another threat, the destroyer, uh, Moses, is entirely reverent, entirely fearing. 
and obeys completely what God's commandment was. To understand this paradox, we need to see, thirdly, faith's focus. Faith's focus. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 11. This is going to explain why Moses feared in one circumstance and was entirely fearless in the other. Look with me at verse 27, will you? By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured... Now read this next phrase with me out loud, will you? As seeing him who is invisible... Say that one more time. As seeing him who is invisible. Now let's try to see if we can understand what's being said there. First of all, how can you see something that's invisible? That's a contradiction. You can't see things that are invisible. Literally the definition of of invisible is not seeable. So he's trying to get at something here for us to understand. He was seeing him who was invisible. You say, does this mean that Moses saw God in the burning bush? That's not what Hebrews 11 is talking about here. He's talking about an ongoing sight that Moses had. He endured because it was as if he kept on seeing something that was invisible. Now, do you understand how this connects in with what we've been studying at faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What does faith do? Faith sees things that other people don't see. We, again, have gone back to this, this picture of someone standing on a deck, as one, as a, on, on the deck of a boat, a ship, as one pastor has said, and you put out a telescope and you see things in the future, in the, in, in the distance, that someone standing next to you, looking at the same direction, in the same way, cannot see. Faith sees what other people don't see. It is proof. It is evidence. Someone asks you, why do you believe? In Jesus Christ. You say, because I see him. They say, we don't see him, but you see him by faith. This is what Peter said to the people that he was writing to in 1 Peter 1.8. Listen to these words. He said, whom, speaking of Jesus, having not seen, you have not seen Jesus, but you love. How do you love someone you've never seen before? By faith. In whom, though now ye see him not, you don't see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Why do Christians rejoice? Because they see Jesus. You say, they don't see Jesus. No, they don't see him like this, but they see him like this. And they love him. And they serve him. And they rejoice about him. Do you know what it is to rejoice in the reality of who Jesus is? When you open your Bibles in the morning to read, does your heart ever rejoice that the things you believe are real? Suddenly it's like this new reality springs up in your heart and you say, it's real. It's real. And you rejoice. Do you ever pray and the love of God descends on your heart and you say, God actually does love me. Jesus actually did die for me. Friend, if you don't know that experience, then you don't know faith. Because faith sees things. Faith experiences things. 
And I want to say is this, especially to those of you who grew up or are growing up in Christian homes like I did, and you have been taught the truths of the Bible since you were very young, and you know them intellectually, you could explain every single one of them, and yet you know as you sit here today, it's not real to you. It's not real. Other things are real to you, but not that. And you can come to church and you can sit down and you can sing the hymns and you can, you can quote the Bible verses and you can talk a good game. Anyone, you can trick anyone, but you know in your heart of hearts it's not real. I just don't know that it's real. And your life is living like it. You're living like there are other things that are real, but the things of God are not real. Do you know what needs to happen? Not, not just in those lives, but in all of our lives. The one that brings reality to our spiritual lives is the Holy Spirit. If you don't know the Holy Spirit, your life, your Christian life won't be real. It won't be as real to you as the other things are. And I want to testify to you, however imperfectly and however faintly and however more I would love to experience it, I can tell you those times in life when the things of God are so real to me is something that you cannot trade. You cannot trade. You say, it is true. I would die for this. There is a heaven. There is a reality. What is it? It is faith that is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life in which there is reality. You see things that others cannot see. And friends, this will make all the difference in the way you live. We've talked about this before, that Olympic athlete who for four years abandons everything about the way other people are living their lives and trains under relentless intensity, sacrificing the things that we find precious in order to pursue one thing, a gold medal. Why? Because they see something that other people don't see four years in the future. And they say, I'm going to live my life for that. Why did Bill Gates drop out of Harvard? Why did he drop out so that he could pursue a vision that no one else had? A vision that there's this company that I can found and I will hit it big? That's the spirit of the entrepreneur. They see things that other people don't see and they pursue it. What drives us as Christians? What can drive you is a kind of duty. Oh, I'm supposed to do it like this. My parents taught me to do it like this. The pastor expects me to do it like this. But no, that's not the main underlying reason. What is it? It's got to be faith. We walk by faith. What is faith? The reality that the things you can't see are true. And so why do you get up and read your Bible in the morning? Because you believe that God's going to meet you there. Can you see him? No. Do you experience him by faith? Yes. And so you get up and read your Bible. Why do you run away from sin and turn away from sin in your life, even though it may be pleasurable? It may experience short-term pleasure because you say, I've experienced God. He's real. I'm living for him. And that's not real. God is more real to me than that temptation is in the moment. So I turn away from it because he has said. Why are Christians around the world giving up all of the comforts of life and going to be missionaries undertaking the most significant sacrifices, even being willing to risk their lives and give their lives for the faith because they said there's an eternal life that's more real to me than the pressures of this life are and I'm living for that one. I'm not living for this one. You say, what is it? It's faith. And we shouldn't hold up these people around as some kind of superheroes because they're not. They're ordinary people like you and I are. They just see something in a greater way than you and I do. And if we saw it the same way that they did, 
Maybe God wouldn't call us to go be a missionary and sacrifice our entire life, but perhaps he'd call us to live a different way than we are today. You say, I don't know if I see that. I don't know if I can live that way. Friends, if that's true, the problem is faith. The problem is the, is the reality of the Holy Spirit speaking to us and us being sensitive to him is faith. What faith focuses on is what Moses saw. He saw, it was as he saw him who is invisible. Do you know what this brings about in Moses' life, in mine and yours? Fearlessness. Fearlessness. How could Moses stand up to the most powerful man perhaps in all the world? Because he saw someone more powerful than him. Someone more powerful than him was real. And he was the one he was going to serve. Do you know this is true for all of us? There are times in your life where you take on one fear because you fear something greater. There are many of us who have medical procedures that we are terrified of in normal times. How many of us are terrified by putting an IV in our arm? How many would, of us would be terrified by being put under anesthesia and going to sleep for hours at a time? How many of us would be terrified for a scalpel to be placed into our flesh, cutting away some aspect, leaving a scar or a great wound? Most of us would be naturally afraid of that. And yet you and I would not blink at going under that experience if there's a cancerous mass in your body that needs to be removed. You'd say, I can take on that fear because I fear this more. You see? And in the same way, Moses could take on what was a fearful circumstance. The most powerful man in the world, perhaps at the time. Why? Because he feared someone greater. God. Do you know Jesus said the same thing to us? Do you know how Jesus encouraged us, motivated us to live for him? He told us we were going to be persecuted. He told us life was going to be difficult at times for those who were faithful servants of Jesus Christ. He warned us of all these things. But what did he say? Listen to Matthew chapter 10. He said, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Don't fear them who all they can do is bring you to the grave. Would you normally fear those kind of people? You bet, I would. Listen to what he says. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a wrong kind of fear. Don't fear him who can kill your body. Human beings. Who do you fear? There's a right kind of fear. Fear him who has the power not just of life and death, but eternal life and death over your soul. Fear him. There's a right kind of fear. And there's a wrong kind of fear. And what I want to say and encourage all of us, myself included, a man who deals with his own set of fears of man, is that when God is at the center of your reality, other fears tend to fade away. Do you remember that song? I think we, take, uh, we, we sung it last week, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I love that last line. And the things of earth will grow faintly dim in the light of his glory and grace. When you look on him and his reality is central in your soul, other fears melt away. Do you know this is true of your daily fears that you and I deal with? 
anxieties about our income, anxieties about our financial position, about our job, about our future relationships, all the anxieties that we deal with. Do you remember what Jesus came to teach us? He said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't take any thought, don't be worried, don't be anxious about the clothes that you're put on, about the food in your table, about your own well-being. He said, there's a father up in heaven. He cares for sparrows. He, he, he puts clothing on the, on the fields, on the crops that grow up in the fields. Why don't you worry about him and not worry about what you're living with in your daily life. You see, when I am dealing, I'm living in anxiety, I'm living in fear. What that tells me is that my faith is not activated. It's telling me that the faith that is to be the reality of my soul is not there, which tells me this. When I'm dealing with fear, I need to go ask God to deal with my faith. Have you ever done this when you're dealing with something that you're anxious about, that you're fearful about? Have you ever gone to a quiet place and said, God, I'm dealing with fear right now, and that means my faith isn't alive like it should be. So God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to show me the reality of who you are. Show me the reality of your power. Show me the reality of your care for me. Show me the reality of your love and protection for me. And then the word of God might open up to you and God will reveal that to you. And you say, okay, I don't need to fear anymore. Faith took over and the wrong kind of fear was banished. That's faith. The reality of God becoming real to you such that it drives away other kinds of fear. But I want to look at the second aspect of that just momentarily and briefly. What does it mean to say that Moses feared? Not just that he was fearless, but that he feared. Because he indeed did fear. He saw that destroyer. He saw the possibility of that destroyer. And he, it changed his behavior. He obeyed. This is why Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You are not going to start understanding wisdom in your life unless you understand the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Now, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Sometimes, again, we are turned away, turned aside from this idea because we have an idea of how a, a child might fear an abusive parent or someone would fear in a kind of cringing, cowering, trembling sense. And that's not really what scripture is getting at when it says the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is rooted in a deep reverence for God. Do you understand what that word reverence means? What is a reverence for someone? A reverence is connected to respect. A reverence is connected to awe. A reverence is connected indeed in our relationship to God, to love. But a reverence that Moses had for God was the respect, the all-encompassing respect for who God is as a being. A complete reverence that he is the creator and I am the created being. He holds all the power over me in his hand. I am entirely in his care. I am entirely subjected to him. My destiny is controlled by him and therefore I fear him. I reverence him. 
I respect him. That was Moses. Moses knew God. Moses loved God. And because Moses knew and loved God, he deeply respected him. He deeply reverenced him and it caused him to obey. There's a wonderful uh, illustration of this in a sermon by the old English preacher J.C. Ryle. He tells a story of an even more ancient English preacher, a man named Hugh Latimer. And this story may be apocryphal, uh, but it is such a, it's such a wonderful story. This, he, this man, uh, Hugh Lattimore, was a very well-known popular preacher in the 1500s, I think it was, in Great Britain. He ultimately was martyred under Bloody Mary. He, was, he is uh, read about in the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You may have read about his execution there. But the story goes that Hugh Latimer was one day called to preach in front of the king. The king, King uh, Henry VIII, would be coming to listen to his sermon. And apparently at that time, Latimer realized that his sermon might not please this king. His sermon might be on a controversial topic that would be in perhaps putting him in danger. And as J.C. Ryle recounts it, this is how Latimer began his sermon. He said, Latimer, Latimer, again, speaking publicly in front of the king, do you remember that you are speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII, who has power to command you to be sent to prison and who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that will offend royal ears? He said that. And then he said, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you are speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give account yourself? Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. That is one person who sees who is in front of him, but who ultimately sees as even a greater reality who is above him and who is above all of us and lives his life accordingly. Who do you fear? Who do I fear? I'll tell you who you fear and who I fear. How I live my life will show who I fear. How I live my life in relationship to my obedience to him, in my obedience to the word of God, in my submission or con in contrary wise to the pursuits and pleasures of this world. That will be who I fear, who I ultimately respect and reverence above all. You see, the ultimate example of this was our Savior. Jesus was the example, the prime example of a godly fear that made him entirely fearless. Turn back with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I want us to see this because ultimately I think this is the place where we need to see our ultimate example. Look with me at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 5. Speaking of Jesus, this author of Hebrews, this same book that we're reading in chapter 11, says of Jesus, In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. When did Jesus do that? offer prayers with strong crying and tears in Gethsemane. Remember when he bowed and said, God, take this cup from me. He saw the awful death in front of him. He saw being separated from God in sin as becoming sin for us, even though he knew no sin. Notice what it says here back in verse seven. 
He was heard in that he feared. He was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Why did Jesus go to the cross for you and for me? Because he loved us? Yes. Do you know also why Jesus obeyed and went to the cross? Because he feared his father. He reverenced him. He submitted to him when he said, not my will, but thy will be done. And he obeyed. And you and I, when the reality of God is in our souls, we look at him and say, not my will, but yours be done. I will obey. I will do what you have commanded me to do. And we do it. But look at verse 8. Not only did he learn obedience by the things which he suffered, but going ahead to verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that, what's the next word? Obey him? Wait a second. Wait a second. Our theological antenna need to go up. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that believe in him, right? We're saved by faith. Is that what Hebrews 5 says? He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. What's he trying to say? Do you remember what Hebrews 11 is trying to convince these fearful Hebrews of? He's trying to show them what saving faith looks like. He's saying we are not of them that draw back unto perdition. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And he's saying, do you want to know what faith looks like? This faith that saves you? This faith that saves you is seeing him who is invisible and obeying. Obeying. Friends, this faith that saves is the kind of faith that makes a difference in your life. The faith that saves is not a head knowledge that says, sure, I believe all that stuff that my parents taught me growing up and doesn't reflect itself at all in the way you live. Because faith must obey. Because faith is connected to the reality of God in our life which produces that obedience. Friends, ultimately where I want to close this morning is with this simple and wonderful picture that is presented before all of us. Why do we obey and become a Christian? It's because just like in that Old Testament example where Moses feared a destroyer that was coming, there is a destroyer that is coming to meet this world one day. The Bible tells us that there is wrath to come. That Jesus is the one who saves us from that wrath to come. That there is judgment coming upon this world and upon all the evil and the wickedness in it of which in my own sin I play a part. I was talking to a man out in the street on Wednesday night right out in front of our church, a Muslim man. He wanted to talk about theology and he said, oh, in, in Islam, he said, if you want to have your sins forgiven, all you need to do is repent and ask and you will be forgiven. And I tried to explain to him, I said, how does that work? If all it takes is just asking to be forgiven and being forgiven, I said, if you went down this street to the Hennepin County Courthouse 
and you were to go there to the trial of the, of the police officer, Derek Chauvin, and, and with the killing of, of, of George Floyd, I said, if, 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 if Derek Chauvin were to come into that courtroom and say to that judge, judge, I'm sorry, I did wrong, and that judge says, okay, go free, I'll forgive you, go ahead, I said, that would be an unjust judge. An unjust judge. And so it is in our life. There is a God who is just and he will bring his judgment upon all men. And the question is whether I will see that wrath to come and whether by that fear of God, that holy reverence for the one who holds the control over all my life, whether I will submit to him whether I, will ex- whether I will accept the blood that has been shed for me, that I will take by faith that blood and have it, see it applied to my life by faith and say, Jesus, I am yours. By faith, I obey. By faith, I submit to the plan of salvation that God has given to me in Jesus Christ. Friends, has that reality become yours? Have you submitted to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the only payment for your sins and is the reality of God real to you in your life. Friends, there is a right kind of fear and there is a very wrong kind of fear. And each one of us in our daily lives will will decide in that sense whether we will follow him or we will follow something else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that there is a reality of faith that faith brings, a reality in which Jesus is alive, in which he is coming back to be our judge, and a reality in which by faith we obey him. And there is a reality in which Jesus is not alive to us. The things of God are dead to us. And we may know the what right words to say and the right actions to mime, but ultimately we don't know that faith. I pray, Father, for a sobering assessment for each one of us. I pray, Father, that you would bring into our hearts by the Holy Spirit a greater reality of who Jesus is and a fearlessness that comes when he is alive to us. Let's pause for a moment. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, friends, who do you fear? As we continue to reflect, if you realize that the things of God are not real to you, like they seem to be to others, I want you to be honest and humble enough to admit it. The quiet of your own heart to say, God, I need a greater reality of you. It needs to be more real and more alive to me. Ask him to revive you. Ask him to bring you to his word, to show you the truths that are real, to see what is invisible and live your life according to it.